We're going to welcome to our pulpit now Reverend Randy Patton. His wife, Cindy, I think, is here also, waving. There she is, okay, behind him, way behind him, in fact, but always behind him. He's a pastor. He's a counselor. He's a friend of College Park Church. He's a friend of mine. They're also growing active members of College Park Church. Right now, officially, he's executive director of NANC, the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. They're housed at, on our West Campus, and you can stop by there and see it sometime. He's also one of the board, on the Board of Trustees at Cedarville University. Annually, he has traditionally been a preacher at College Park Church to bring in the new year, and he does it on a firm, biblical, practical basis. When I was taking counseling training back in 1989, I would travel from the church where I pastored in Ohio all the way, four and a half hour one way, to Lafayette, Indiana, and sit under Randy's ministry and the others who were teaching there. And I remember going through certain struggles. Uh, I had been contacted by a Bible college out in Iowa to come teach for them, and I just did not know what to do. And he spent time with me. Um, Let's see, he, he, he's a good one for asking questions to clarify. So back then, I don't know what the outline is now, but you would collect the data. And then you would discern the problem. And then you would gain the involvement of the counselee. Then you would give hope and give homework. Is it roughly those kinds of things? He did that for me. He gave me very, very wise counsel. I'm forever indebted for that and for his friendship to College Park and to our Lord Jesus Christ. So at this time, Randy Patton, would you come and minister to our hearts? Well, thank you, Brother Don, and good morning, College Parks. Good to see you. Hope you've uh, had a good holiday so far and are anticipating uh, the new year. It's a real privilege uh, for me to speak. This is a an unexpected blessing. I thought with Pastor Mark coming that I would look forward to sitting where you are and hearing him end the year. And, uh, and as I, in the last few years, I've had the wonderful privilege of being the speaker the first Sunday of the year. And one of the men in the hallway before the first service saw me and noted that I was speaking now at the last service of the year. And he said, well, that's scriptural. You know, the Bible says the first will be last. So... Uh, <laughs> So here we are, and uh, we will all look forward to Pastor Mark being back in the, the, the pulpit next Sunday. Uh, <clears throat> as uh, Brother Don mentioned, I have the privilege of serving Christ as the executive director of NANC, the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. And uh, the word neuthetic uh, comes from a couple of Greek words from which our Bible is translated, and basically it means to put into the mind or to change a person on in the inner man that leads to outer man changes. And neuthetic maybe more than any other <clears throat> single word describes what we would call biblical counseling. Uh, NANC is a, an organization that's over 30, <clears throat> excuse me, 30 years old and is primarily a certifying organization. We certify individual biblical counselors and we certify training centers. And uh, this past year we had a record year. Over 103 people completed our theology, or completed our training program, completed a a theology exam, a counseling exam, <clears throat> and then had over 50 hours of their own personal counseling supervised. And the highlight of my year for me, other than preaching at College Park, of course, is uh, at our annual conference <clears throat> in October where I get to 
hand a certificate to the people who've completed certification. And this year, 56 of the 103 people came to St. Louis to be recognized. And part of what made that really special for me was that two of the people to whom I handed certificates in St. Louis were College Park members, Kelly Alexander and Janice Capucci. And uh, it was really a joy for me to do that. They join a growing list of other people in our congregation that have completed the certification process. There's now 10 NANC certified counselors that are a part of College Park Church, including two that are uh, staff members. And for those of you that are visiting, I, I would want you to know that that just reflects this church's commitment to helping people in the practical uh, uh, issues of life and living and getting answers from God's word. And uh, if you're visiting today and you're struggling with issues of life and, and how to think the way God wants you to do and how to respond in hard situations, you're at a place that uh, seeks to specialize in helping people like you. And I'd urge you to call the counseling center here and to get help. We also have two men that are currently uh, in the supervision phase and finishing uh, certification. Uh, we're offering training around the nation, and if you have family members or friends that you think might be interested in the kind of Bible-based, practical preaching, teaching, equipping to help use the Word of God to solve problems, I hope you'll point them to our website and be reminded of this kind of training that we're doing in these five major cities. And if you want to find a counselor and learn more about us, you can go to our NANC site, our website at nank.org and uh, learn more about us. I hope you will do that and check us out. And uh, I would not have a clear conscience if I stood before this body and did not say thank you for being our church. Cindy and I are so pleased to have been uh, members here for many, many years. Right now, uh, uh, four or five of the NANC uh, employees are all members here. We're so grateful for Pastor Mark and the excellent preaching and teaching. And in our office, we regularly talk about, well, that sermon's something I can use with one of my counselees and And uh, we're so thankful for that. Again, we're thankful for the office space that is provided to us free of charge by the church down at the ministry center. That's such a help to us in our international ministry. And the monthly support in addition to that and just the overall encouragement that uh, we get in our efforts to help equip people around the world, particularly in the United States, for using the word of God in helping to solve problems. Thank you for that. I've uh, chosen today to speak to you on the subject of help me, God, I need some financial counseling. Now, let me clarify, I am not speaking on this because I've been asked to. Uh, Pastor Mark asked if I was available and would uh, speak, and when I asked if there was any particular areas of concern or something, he said, you pray about it, and whatever God lays on your heart, you preach on it. All right, so I've not been asked by leadership to do that. Neither am I speaking on this, Because our church is in a financial crisis. In fact, one of the joys of speaking on this issue right now is the fact that we're not in a financial crisis. Uh, One of the the things I like to do every Sunday when I come is look at the back of the bulletin, the back of the program, down at the bottom, read the numbers, do the math, and I rejoice in being a church that even before we called Pastor Mark, we were consistently running well ahead of budget and our giving. And the last time I did the math, I think we're a couple hundred thousand dollars ahead. I am proud of being a part of a church like that and that manages its assets well. So I'm not speaking on this subject uh, for those reasons. But there are some reasons why I have chosen to speak on this. We have just finished a marvelous series of messages on the book of Colossians. And Pastor Mark has done just a tremendous job 
making us see and to recognize and working into our hearts the fact that Jesus Christ is the core. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to say to you, if Jesus Christ is the core, if he has his rightful place in your life and in mine, listen to me, it will be manifested in part by our checkbook and our credit card statements. Jesus Christ cannot be the core of our life, cannot be the place he ought to be in our life and be excluded from those areas. I'm also speaking on this subject because there's a new year coming. And many of you, probably like me, have been evaluating where what has transpired in this last year financially and where I think that might end up. Bless you, my servant. Thank you. I'm sorry, I was saying that there's a new year coming. A lot of us are evaluating kind of how we're finishing up this year and kind of what our plans are going to be for the next year. Also, you know, we're, we're in a time, it's, it's recognized, we're in a tough economic time. We're in a very uncertain time. And uh, at our house, just like at your house, as you read the financial statements from your investment advisor and everything, it is not good news these days. And so there's a lot of thinking about finances. And we just come off Christmas, the time of giving. And uh, I've been helped personally just in my own life by going back and just thinking about some scriptures in relation to the whole issue of finances. Before we get into it, let me just back up and talk to you about just our attitude toward the scriptures itself, okay? In Psalm 19, verses 7, uh, 8, and 9, there are six statements about the Bible And there are six different words that are used that all refer to the Bible in some way or another. It's it's like different nuances of the scriptures. And I want you to notice that the Bible in Psalm 19 verses 7, 8, and 9 is talking about what the word of God does to us. Would you notice this? Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Uh, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Now, many of us in this room could give testimony to one or more of those six things that the scriptures have done, the multiple ways that the word of God has helped us. For example, many of us have found that when we were hurting, we were struggling with the trials of life, maybe mistreatment in life and so forth, and things were really hard and it drove us to the scriptures just dealing with our own sin, our own guilt, our own habits of thinking and behavior that that were so repulsive to us at times, that when we turn to God's word... We really got help. And many of us would say, my life has been transformed by turning to this book and the God of this book and following his principles and bringing my thinking and my desires into conformity with this scripture. It's transformed me personally. Many of you in this room would say, my marriage was on the rocks. I mean, it it was the pits. But a faithful pastor, a Christian friend, a biblical counselor opened the word of God 
And help me to understand the purpose of marriage. The Bible talks about that clearly, about the role of a husband, how a husband should act, how a wife should act, what the duties are, biblical principles of communication, uh, biblical principles of sexuality and marriage and so forth. And as I listened to the word of God and I obeyed it, my life was transformed. Not just my soul was restored, but my marriage was restored. But many in this room would, would say that about the, the, the scriptures in relation to your parenting. Many of you have struggled, have had children that were headed in the wrong direction, that were breaking your heart, that were frustrating the fire out of you. And the struggles on the parenting front drove you to the Bible and to careful study, to reading books that explain the scriptures, to memorizing scriptures, to using biblical principles, to reject the world's philosophy of parenting, and to, to use biblical principles. And God, in his grace, has used those principles to change your home and to change your family. And those kind of experiences lead us to do what the psalmist said as he concluded his view of the scriptures. He said in Psalm 19, verse 10, These principles are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. What I've discovered is this. When a person is grappling with how do I think about myself, how do I handle the mistreatment that I've been experiencing in life, how do do I deal with all these problems in my life, when a person is overwhelmed like that, they are not thinking primarily about money. When a person's marriage is on the rocks and the relationship in life that they most wanted to succeed is breaking their heart, they're not thinking primarily, they're not desiring primarily money then. They want answers. They want peace of heart. And when you have children that are keeping you awake at late at night and causing you to go to sleep with tears on your pillow, you're not thinking about a promotion at work. You're thinking about, I need answers from God's word. I need answers for life. And when we get those, our testimony becomes like the psalmist. These principles are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Then they're, they're more sweeter than the, the honey and the honeycomb. And look at this. Moreover, by these principles, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Now, if that is true about personal problems and about marriage and about parenting issues, and it is, and it is, and it is. I want you to understand that the same Bible that has answers for you as an individual with your current struggles in life, the same Bible has answers for you with your struggles with your marriage, the same Bible has answers for you about your parenting struggle, is the Bible that also has answers for your attitude toward money. And the Bible that can give you clear direction personally, maritally, and parentally can also give you clear direction in the area of finances. In fact, the Bible deals with five key areas regarding money and its management. The Bible talks to us about earning money. And there's some very clear uh, principles and instruction in both the Old Testament and the New Testament on the matter of earning money. By the way, did you know that a failure to work, an unwillingness to work, 1 Thessalonians says, is one of the criteria by which a person would be dismissed from the membership of a church? I mean, the Bible is very clear about the matter of, of earning. The Bible also talks about the matter of saving. 
in the matter of anticipating the future and anticipating downtimes in the economy and anticipating maybe a layoff or something. The Bible talks about saving. The Bible also has principles about investing and talks to us about what our attitude ought to be and, and the kind of, of things that we would be thinking about as we invest according to, to wise principles. The Bible also talks to us about spending and talks to us about principles that will help us to live within our means and to have a heart of contentment. And the Bible also talks to us about the matter of giving. And again, it's very clear, it's very practical. And I'm hoping that one of the things that will happen as a result of this study, and at this time of the year going into the new year, that many of you will be motivated to take advantage of the wonderful conference being held here at our church later in the month of January, uh, taught by Crown Financial Ministries, uh, a wonderful organization that's equipped so many people to have a biblical view of finances. And I hope you'll come and consider attending that because all five of these areas will be touched on during that, train, that time. Now, many of us have been experiencing difficulties in these areas. We've had hard times. We are having hard times as a country. They're painful times for many. But I want you to understand that hard times are not necessarily bad. Hard is hard. It's not necessarily bad. In fact, I would argue that sometimes hard times turn out to be good times because they motivate us to reevaluate where we are, where we're headed, reevaluate our priorities, and the pain of life oftentimes is what drives us to the scriptures. Pain is a great motivator to reevaluate change and to drive us to God's word. I was wanting to think of some way to kind of just illustrate for you the fact that we've we got a great time in front of us right now to be just re- thinking about the Bible and finances, all five of these. And I thought about some magazine covers and so forth and decided not to do that. One of the things that uh, I enjoy about reading the uh, Indianapolis Star are the editorial cartoons by Gary Varvel. Let me just show you four from the last two months. And it's to make the point, this is a great time for you to open your Bible and to study it, looking for answers on all five of these areas about finances. Here's one from October 25th. Here's one from November 24th. Here's one from December 2nd. Here's one from December 20th. Now, what I'd like you to think about in hard times, when we come back to the scriptures and we try to find God's ways, to think his ways and to act his ways, I will say to you that as you do that, what will happen is you will come to a point where you will say in this area of your life, these principles are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. These principles are sweeter to me than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by these, thy servant, thy servants have been warned. We've avoided some pitfalls to come people who follow man's wisdom instead of God's wisdom in this area. And our testimony will be 
in keeping your principles, O Lord, there has been great reward in this area, just like in your personal life, just like in your marriage, just like in your parenting. Well, with that in mind, I thought of the five, the one I'm going to give attention to today in just this brief time is number five, the one on giving. And I want to just talk to you briefly about uh, some biblical principles to guide you in the new year on this matter of giving. We just finished gr- Christmas, but we've been giving, we've been receiving. Uh, this is a great chance for us to start the new year thinking clearly about what the Bible says about the matter of our giving. The, the passage of Scripture that's been the most helpful to me on this subject is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Paul said to them, On the first day of every week, let each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. Now, if you just focus your attention on verse 2 for a moment. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. I think we could summarize that verse this way. During tough, uncertain, during the tough, uncertain economy of 2009, God wants your giving to have four characteristics. And what I'm going to share with you in the next few minutes, this is just a summary of what the Bible says about this part of our finances. It's not all of it. I mean, the Bible talks about other areas, but this is the one that we're focusing on right now. During tough, uncertain times in 2009, God wants our giving to be marked by four characteristics. The first one is God wants your giving, God wants my giving to be planned. Would you notice that phrase, meditate on it, on the first day of every week? On the first day of every week. Now, the first day of every week, of course, is Sunday. You're aware that most of the people... Uh, in the early church, had a Jewish background. And people from that faith worshipped on Saturday. But after the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Sunday, Christ arose on Sunday, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, instantaneously culture was changed for thousands of people who became followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they rejected what they had done for years and years, decades, what their parents had done, and they began worshiping, not on Saturday, but on Sunday. Now, what the Bible is saying is when we are to plan our giving, the Scripture is saying we are to plan when to give. That is, we plan to give on Sunday. Sunday is a day of worship. And you need to understand that when we worship, when we come together, we are planning not just when to give on Sunday, but Where to give. And my understanding of the scripture is that God is most pleased when the bulk of our giving is channeled through our local church of which we are a part. doesn't mean we can't give to others. In fact, I I think the Bible teaches we ought to give others to other ministries. But the bulk of our giving is to come here. Why? We plan when to give on Sunday. We plan where to give. In fact, I think the planning part of this can take some very practical uh, aspects in the, the management of your assets. I have found in, in our family that during the, the years where I was the one uh, paying the bills, that when I would sit down to pay the bills, my custom was was to write my tithe check first. I planned to do that. And then other giving that we might do. And then the mortgage and other bills and things came. We plan when to give. Put that first. 
God says we're to plan on the, to give on the first day of every week. Uh, I think this planning indicates that budgeting is a good idea. Some of you may have been taught uh, by well-meaning preachers or teachers that uh, budgeting is a lack of faith. I would disagree with that. I mean, this is clearly saying to the church at Corinth, you plan your giving. And a budget is nothing more than a planned expenditures. And I would encourage you to plan your budget, both personally and then I'm proud to be a part of a church. We plan our budget here. Years ago, I had a pastor friend uh, that was serving at a church in Ohio, and we got together at a class reunion, and we were talking, and I asked him how his church was going, and he told me about they were having some significant uh, financial difficulties. And I, I asked, I said, well, what, why, why the, all the financial pressure? And I've never forgotten his response. He said, well, he said, i got a church full of buck chippers. And I'd never heard that before. I said, what is a buck chipper? He said, well, a buck chipper is somebody who, while the offering is being prayed for or the offering plate is coming, they're sorting through their their bills in their pocket and they're chipping in a buck. You know, the planning starts when the the preacher says, okay, we're going to bow together for prayer. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not what the scriptures are talking about. The God wants you to plan ahead to come prepared to give. Planned giving. Many of you maybe have seen a sign. You know, some churches have signs out front where they can put sayings and things in them. Uh, Years ago, I drove by a church in Wabash, Indiana. The sign out front said, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. He also accepts from a grouch. Well, (laughs) whether you're a cheerful or a bit grouchy about it, if you plan to give, you're moving in the direction of being more biblical. God wants our giving to be marked by planning. Second, the scripture that we're looking at says God wants our giving to be personal. Did you notice the phrase of 1 Corinthians 16:2, let each one of you? That phrase means let each one of you. This include this includes students. This includes singles. This includes just married. This includes uh, parents with kids in college. This includes retired people. It means each one of you. You know, uh, many people, when challenged with the matter of giving, will typically respond by saying, well, you know, I, I want to give, I know the Bible talks about it, and someday I'm going to do that. I just can't right now. In fact, uh, I learned that uh, there's some characteristics typically with that. When uh, Cindy and I were serving a church in Fort Wayne, Indiana years ago, uh, we were, I was the pastor of that church for 12 years, and we had an annual event we called Stewardship Month, where um, I did teaching and some guest speakers would come in. We would do teaching on how we were to be good stewards of our time, our talent, and our treasure. And part of Stewardship Month each year was doing some teaching, a little bit like what I'm doing right now, talking to people about the five areas where the Bible talks about money and explaining what the Scripture says and then showing them how to put that into practice and so forth. And for us, at our, at our church, the culmination of Stewardship Month was what we called the Stewardship Banquet, which was a real highlight for us during the, uh, our church calendar. And it was interesting, during the 12 years we had Stewardship Month, we always had more people saved and who join our church during Stewardship Month than any other time during the year. It's interesting how you start talking to people about their money. It's like Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And you start talking about where your treasure is, you start dealing with heart issues. 
And um, for many people, this was a very significant month. And I learned after a few years that after week three of teaching and preaching on the matter of being good stewards of our finances as well as our time and our talent, that I could expect people asking for an appointment with me. And I'll, I'll tell you a story about one guy. I'll call him Bill for a name. He, uh, <clears throat> he came in after week three, and he and his wife had joined the church about uh, six, eight weeks after the preceding stewardship month. So they've been a members almost a year before the next stewardship month rolls around. And this was all new to him. They had already got plugged in, were active in the ministry. And so after uh, about week three of the stewardship month, he makes an appointment, comes and tells me, and says, Pastor, he said, we've been listening to all you've been teaching about the matter of giving and everything, and said, we, we really want to give, we want to obey the Bible, we've learned so much, and the Scriptures helped us in so many areas. But he told me, he said, we want to give, but I've sharpened my pencil two or three times. That's the first time I ever heard that statement. He said, I've sharpened my pencil two or three times, and it just won't work for us. We can't give. Well, this was a couple that uh, I had gotten to know fairly well, and it was kind of a joke among the church that if you ever got invited to their house after a church service or after a, a gym night or something, you just knew what you were going to eat. This family was just famous for their commitment to pizza and Pepsi. And every time you're invited to their house, you're going to have pizza and Pepsi. And they didn't like just any kind of pizza. I mean, they liked Pizza Hut pizza, which I can understand. And... Uh, so, and that was kind of the joke. So while Bill was telling me that all these reasons why they couldn't give, and they still, he still loved me, still loved the church, still believed the Bible and everything, but that let each one of you, I can't do that. Well, <clears throat> I did two things. I took him to Philippians chapter 4. Here's a verse that most of you can quote. I'll start it, then you help me finish it, all right? Philippians 4.13, I can do through Christ who strengthens me. Do you realize, check it out sometime, Philippians 4, look at verses 10 through 13. The immediate context of that verse is talking about handling the ups and the downs of life financially. That verse that is so loved by us, that gives hope and encouragement and has to us in the past, is in the immediate context. Paul's saying, I've learned to abound, I've learned to be obeyed, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I helped Bill that day to think about that passage and Paul's testimony. And then the other thing I said to him, I said to him, if I could give you an idea on how you could begin giving, would you want to do it? He said, well, absolutely. We want to do what the Bible says, we just can't. I said, okay, here's an idea for you. Why don't you consider, you and your wife, talk it over. Why don't you consider just giving up pizza and Pepsi for the rest of this year and take the money that you would ordinarily spend on pizza and Pepsi every week and why don't you just bring that and that will be part of your giving to the Lord. He looked at me and said, you've got to be kidding. And I said, no, Bill, I'm very serious. You can't unless you change. And ladies and gentlemen, some of you who are thinking, I want to give, but I can't, you can. But you may have to change. But let me say to you, God's changes are always improvements. And God's changes help us to deal with the root issues in our lives, our ruling motivations, our ruling passions. And God's changes bring about things that, are, that help us in the future. Christ said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
And again, I will say to you, if indeed Jesus Christ is the core of your life, the core of your family, it will be reflected in some way in your checkbook and in your credit card statement. Well, God wants our giving to be planned. He wants it to be personal. Number three, did you notice in the verse, the scripture says God wants our giving to be proportionate, to be proportionate. The scripture says, put aside and save as he may prosper. Now, God is talking to us about what is sometimes called financial breathing. It's a phrase that I read one time that I found helpful. The scriptures are teaching that in times of, of, of prosperity, personally and so forth, and as, as our income increases, that our giving ought to increase. But there are times when our income is retracted, when we may be facing unemployment, and there's other things that are happening, and our income changes, and so the, our, in, our giving goes down. It's to be proportionate. Let me just tell you how I have found it helpful in our family to approach this and to apply this part of Scripture and how many others that I know do it. That is to think about the concept of tithing. If you read the Bible, you know that tithing is talked about numerous times in the Old Testament. And the word tithe, the basic meaning is 10%. That's what the word means. Tithe 10%. So in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was commanded to give multiple tithes. There's tithes of the first fruits and other tithes that they were commanded. Bible scholars have studied this, and the estimates differ, but they all are somewhere in the range of all. You take all the different tithes for the different things they had to give 10% from in the Old Testament, and you lump it together. People in the Old Testament gave somewhere between 23 and 35% of what we would call their gross annual income to the Lord. Now, you need to understand that back then they were helping to pay for things that we pay for now through taxes, right? Through the way the, the, the government of Israel was organized. That helped pay for the welfare, helped run the government, the, the military, and so forth, as well as the temple, all right? Now, while tithing was commanded in the Old Testament... It is not commanded in the New Testament, even though tithing started before God commanded it. You know, Abraham gave gifts to Melchizedek. That was before the, before the commands to tithing back there. And many Christians today have found that model of the tithe, the 10%, to be a helpful standard today. And I would encourage you to think about that. So proportion to giving would work like this. If, uh, if you're... Um, if you have an income of $10,000 a year and you purpose to tithe, you're going to use that as your benchmark for your giving to the Lord. That means that in 2009, you're going to choose to give $1,000 to the Lord's work and you're going to choose to live and adopt a lifestyle where you get by on $9,000. Or if you're making 30000 some of you, uh, that means you're going to give 3000 you're going to live on 27000 or if you're making 50000 a year, you're going to choose to give 5000 and you're going to choose to adopt a lifestyle where you get by on 45000 Or if you're making 100000 have household income of 100000 that means you're going to choose to give 10000 and then choose to live on 90000 Or some maybe who are, have income of 200000 that means you're going to give 20000 and choose to live on 180000 The value of using the tithe is that as your income fluctuates, the proportion of your giving fluctuates. It is proportionate giving. 
Put aside and save as he may prosper. Now, I would guess that in uh, this room, there are many of you who have uh, had the kind of experience I did. I was taught to give as a child. And my parents taught me to do that, and we tried to do that with our children. In fact, later as I studied these things as a result of my uh, pastoring work, I became so convinced of the value of this that one of the things that I did with my children and many other parents in our family did is uh, we, we taught our children that when you go to church, you take your Bible to church. So when our kids were just little tykes, we got them like a Gideon's New Testament. Some of you have those, you know, just a little one, the little child's hand can get around it. And so when we get our kids ready for church, they grab their little Bible and we wanted to train them. When you go to church, you take your Bible with you. Later, I learned the kind of things we're talking about now And I wanted my children to learn to give. And so we would do some teaching at home, and then we would have the money that they had earned or that they were going to come and give. And I learned, I became so convinced of the value of this that I arranged for my children, even when they were young, to get offering envelopes. Because, you know, as parents, sometimes there's a difference between the child having money, intending to put it into the offering plate when you get to church, and it actually getting in the offering plate at the church. And if you have offering envelopes, well, you know, they track those things so you can get a statement every so often and find out how we're doing about getting the money actually in the offering plate. Well, what the benefit of that is, is if you are taught to give while you're young and your responsibilities in life are minimal, you can grow up where this is a habit of your thinking. And you've learned to adjust your lifestyle, even as a child growing up, where you live on 90% of your income. And parents, I urge you to teach your children how to do that. Now, for some of you who weren't taught that and who are now at a point where this is not a part of your life, you're going to have to make some adjustments. It will be a little bit harder, but that that doesn't mean it's bad. God's changes will be improvements in your life, just as they have been in others. God wants our giving to be proportionate. I heard a story about years and years ago, back shortly after our country was founded, there was a lay Methodist preacher that had been asked to go up into the mountains to preach at a small rural church. <clears throat> and so on the given Sunday, he and his uh, son got up real early, got their horses saddled up, and they rode for an hour or so to find this little uh, community. And uh, as they entered the church, they noticed that the, 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 lay, the Methodist lay preacher noticed on the wall there was a box that was called, that was labeled for the poor. And even though he wasn't real well off himself financially, he shuffled through his pocket and found a quarter and dropped it in. And they went in and they had uh, singing and preaching and the, the worship service that morning. And after the service was over, the, one of the key leaders in the church thanked him for coming and said, now our church's custom is that we always give the visiting preacher whatever's been put in the poor box. So I went over, took it off the wall, emptied it out, and all that came out was a quarter. And he gave it to the preacher. So the preacher and his son, little son, get on the, their horses to start riding back home. And the little boy had watched all this. And he said to his dad, he said, Daddy, how much money did you put in that box? He said, 25 cents. Daddy, how much money did they give you? Twenty-five cents. And the boy thought a little bit, and he said, Daddy, you'd have got more out if you'd put more in. (laughs) God wants our giving to be proportionate. 
And so, as you are being prospered, I exhort you to increase your giving and tithes and offerings. As you're facing financial difficulties and layoffs and your income is being restricted or down, through downsizing, there's to be that natural finance. But, but give. But it's to be proportionate. Well, the fourth principle we see in this passage is that God wants our giving to be purposeful. God wants our giving to be purposeful. Did you notice the scripture says that no collections be made when I come? In the immediate context here, we see two reasons, two purposes for giving. First, verses 1 and 2 point out the fact that we give to meet needs here. We give to meet needs here. 1 Corinthians 16.1 says, As I told the churches of Galatia, so also do you. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. But what Paul was saying is, he's saying to the church at Corinth, anticipate what your needs are in the future, such as the Apostle Paul coming to visit. Anticipate what your needs are and prepare for those. Again, it's an argument for budgeting. But it means that when we give, folks, that we need to, as we put our offering in the, the plate when it's being passed, as I did this morning, I'm thinking, okay, by my doing that, I'm, I'm helping to, to pay the, the staff salaries. I'm helping to support the, the, the heating and the care of the building. I'm helping to support, you know, the various multitude ministries of this church. That's why we give to meet needs here. But also we give need, we give to meet needs elsewhere. Look at verses 3 and 4 in the text. He says, when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. We give to meet needs elsewhere. Back in this time, the issue was that the believers in Jerusalem were experiencing tremendous hardship because of persecution and because of overcrowding and because of famine. And the believers were responding in, in, in Corinth, were responding to try to help meet that need and believers in other places. So when we give, we're not focused just on giving here, but we're giving elsewhere through our church's ministry, through our, our, our missions that are supported and so forth. You know, one of the things that I personally like about having the bulk of our giving coming to the church is the fact that you're able to keep an eye on it and how it's used. You know, in this last year, there have been some notable um, religious organizations, nonprofit religious organizations, that have been in the news. And, and um, there's even a, a couple of senators that are really pushing for examination of nonprofits, uh, financial books, and so forth. And World Magazine did an expose of some very prominent. Uh, ministries um, that are on TV and um, hold big conferences and everything. And the, the lead article in the World Magazine article was, what kind of a jet would Jesus fly? And it was an expose of these nonprofit organizations with uh, the private jets, some of them having multiple private jets to run their executives across the nation and so forth. Do you realize you hardly ever hear about a local church being in uh, a a real mess because of shoddy um, illegal activities with their finances. You hear about that about extra church ministries, but you don't hear that about churches so much. Do you know why? Because in a church like this one, there's about 1,500, 2,000 people looking around, and if we got a jet, a whole bunch of us would be asking questions, right? (laughs) That, folks, is one of the purposes 
for making your giving primarily local church oriented because you can be like a good steward. He's keeping his eye on how is the money being used. So we give to meet needs here. We give, give to meet needs here and elsewhere through our church. But also, not mentioned in this text, but I would remind you of the words of Christ in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, where he says, we give to send treasures on ahead to heaven. In Matthew 6, 19. And by the way, if you want to study, Matthew 6 has one of the great, the longest sections of the teaching by Jesus Christ on the whole issue of money, our attitude toward it. And Matthew 6, a tremendous passage. He says to us in Matthew 6:19, "Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt." Now we translate that today: "Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where inflation and bankruptcies rob you." But he says instead, "Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust, inflation, bankruptcies, corrupts, and where thieves break through and steal." And then he has these words. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Well, what I've been trying to show you is that during the tough, uh, uncertain times we're facing, God wants you to have, your giving to have four characteristics. He wants it to be planned. He wants it to be personal. He wants it to be proportionate. And he wants it to be purposeful. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to say to you, in this area, as in every other area, if we will bring our thinking and our behavior into conformity with the Scriptures, there will come a time when we will say, as we would say in other areas, these principles about finances, including the principles we've looked at today on giving. These principles are more desirable to me. They've been more help to me than a pay raise. These have been more helpful to me than a new job. They've been sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And moreover, by them, this servant, by them, these servants have been warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Ladies and gentlemen, let's go into the new year determined that Jesus Christ is going to be the core of our lives in every area. And today I'm challenging you to consider, let's go into 2009, even in the midst of tough economic times, determined to live by faith, believing that what we've seen from the Scriptures are true. And we're going to manifest a true commitment to Christ, a true commitment to Him as the core. And it will be demonstrated in part by our checkbook and our credit card statements. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help us to be people who do not just hear your word, but who obey it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.